today I really want to talk about something that I think is near and dear to each of our hearts, uh, something that some would consider the, the pastime of America, uh, and that's juggling. Some of you are like, that's not, and some of you understood that I was trying to make a joke. I was trying to make a joke. Juggling is, is not a pastime. When I was in college, though, I knew this young lady uh, who, she was a professional juggler, if those terms can be put together. And she, like, she juggled bowling pins and flaming torches. She would go to Renaissance fairs. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Um, I think she actually participated in, in America's Got, Got Talent. She, she was really good. And, and I have, through youth ministry and just being bored, just extreme moments of boredom, have tried to juggle. And, and I've come away with some principles to juggling, one of which is that juggling is hard, uh, especially if you don't have a lot of hand-eye coordination. And if you do have a lot of hand-eye coordination, it's still tough. And, and the second principle is that the bigger the objects that you're juggling, the harder it is to juggle. You know, if you have three hacky sacks and you're kind of juggling, you can kind of make it happen. But, you know, you see these guys with bowling balls or, or like I said, bowling pins or, or flaming torches. Not, you know, blades and, and fire withstanding, like that's hard anyways. But, but the bigger the objects are, the harder it is to juggle. And, and I understand that some of you are saying, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I think that we live, and, and juggling provides a helpful metaphor for how we approach the Christian life. And, and we, we come to Christ Many of us, we have this moment, maybe it's at youth, a youth camp, or it's on a Sunday morning, or it's, in, it's at home when you've, you've been thinking over what your friend has said, and we have this moment where we, we realize, oh God, you are my God, and, and, and we commit ourselves to him. And we, we almost say, here's my life, and in that moment, we begin to embrace God. But the problem is, oftentimes, the reality is that we have a number of other things that we are trying to embrace at the same time. And so we, we take God and we throw him up in the air and then we try to pick up this other thing that, you know, I love you, God, but let me hold this for a second. And then he comes down and you're like, ah, and you throw him up in the air and, and, and you, you, hold the, you hold God and then you throw, you, you throw him up in the air and you, you take your career and, and all that it promises and, and gives you and, and you hold that close and, oh, oh the book, you pick up God again, and then, and then this relationship, and you begin to juggle. And, and like me trying to juggle bowling balls or, or flaming torches, eventually bad things happen. Because we are not made, when it comes to our, our ultimate desires, our ultimate devotion, we are not made to be vo- devoted to, to more than one thing. You know, Jesus says that, you know, you cannot be, you cannot have two masters. You, not, you cannot love uh, God, and in the gospel he says mammon or, or, or property or money. But the reality is that there cannot be two ultimate devotions in your life. And so today I want to talk about what it looks like to have right, a right devotion. We're continuing in our series on First John. If you've just joined us for the first time. We've been going through the book of 1 John and been listening to this, this presentation by the Apostle John as he, he lays out some things about what the gospel looks like in contrast to what some of these false teachers in the church that he's writing to, what the false teachers had begun to teach. 
And, he, and he's talked about what it looks like to love God, to, to walk and, and to recognize that though we are sinners, we walk in obedience to God and we walk in, in honesty toward him, uh, admitting our sin, confessing our sins and, and pursuing repentance, not saying we haven't sinned, not saying we don't have sin, but saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner, but you have provided a way through your son, Jesus Christ. And today we're going to read out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Again, if you're new, what we do here is that we stand to honor and reverence the word of God. So if you could do that with me, if you're online, if you could stand with me. And we're going to read this together. John chapter 1, or 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at our lives, as we survey the various aspects of our lives, God, I pray that we would find you in the center. And if you are not in the center, God, I pray that today you would be put in the center of our lives. That we would, we would move our devotion, our focus, our interest, our love to you so that our, our relationships, our pursuits, our professions, our resources, our money, our time, all of that would flow through a devotion on you, that we would be devoted to you, that in our marriages we would be devoted to you, that in our, in our work, in our labor we would be devoted to you, in our, in our private, personal, free time we would be devoted to you. God, would you do that in our lives? Help us to see that, that the pursuit of the world, as John lays it out, is fruitless and destructive, but trusting and devoting ourselves to you is something that produces eternal benefit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. So, John gives us this big picture command. He's pretty straightforward with what he wants to say here. He says, devote yourselves, basically, to God and not the world. And then he gives us some reasons why we ought to not love the world. So if you look at verse 15, it says this, do not love the world or the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things of the, of the world. What does he mean when he says do not love the world? That sounds like a, maybe an obvious question or an obvious answer. Well, you know, don't love. But if you begin to think about it, the world can mean a number of different things. Is he saying don't love the globe? Don't love nature? Don't love creation? Probably not. In Genesis, we see that God created the world, and it was what? Very good. Once he finished with creation, it was very good. And, and he, God places Adam and Eve in this lush garden, and he says there's, there's all these trees, you know, all these fr fruits, all these different, you know, there's a bacon tree, there's a burger tree. I'm just kidding. There, who knows? Maybe. But there's a lot of great things to celebrate in the world. And if you've ever been in, in creation... 
You've had a sense of wonder and, and, and maybe you've seen the, the sunset over the Shenandoah Mountains or, or you've been to the coast and seen the sunrise and, and the, the earth and the world is intended to bring us wonder and, and in a sense pleasure, enjoyment. And so I don't think that he's speaking when he says, do not love the world of physical creation. And again, I think we can ground that in, in biblical truth in that God gave us this world to live in, to, to be fruitful and multiply and, and subdue it, to take on the world, not to hate it, not to dislike it, but to steward it and care for it. In other places, it talks about the world as being kind of the world of humanity, for God so loved what? The world that he gave his own son. In other words, for God so loved humanity, people that he gave his own son. So he can't, he can't be saying do not love people when, when Jesus commands love your neighbor, love your enemy. Some of us would like to, oh, maybe we can not love our enemies because, he, you know, I don't want to love the world. And by the world, I mean my neighbor because his dog barks and, you know, the food they make smells and I don't like them or, you know, they don't like me. No, he's not saying that. We're not off the hook for loving our community and loving the world. Clearly, he doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? And I, I'm, I'm going to take a few minutes to describe this because it's important for us to recognize what he's talking about. And so we're going to cheat and we're going to fast forward through the book of 1 John. And if we look at the way he, he uses the word world, we'll begin to get a picture. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has that he's given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So the, the world is something that does not know or recognize or acknowledge Jesus. Right? So the world, is, it's something that does not acknowledge Jesus. And then if we go forward to verse 13, after we've been at verse 1, it says this. Do not be surprised, brothers, that what? The world hates you. Do not be surprised that the world hates you. So the world doesn't recognize Jesus. Whatever the world is, it doesn't recognize who Jesus is, and it, and it hates those who follow Jesus. It hates believers. It hates individuals who have aligned themselves with Jesus. Then if we go to chapter 4, we can look at verse 1, and it says this, Beloved, <clears throat> do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into what? The world. So the world is full of, of individuals who don't acknowledge Jesus, who don't like believers, and who are in fact speaking false statements about God. God said this, when in actuality God did not say this. Liars about God. Verses 3, 4, and 5 Say this, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which has come and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. In other words, overcome the ones who, who say that Jesus is not the Christ. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Talking about Satan. So the world is a place where Satan is, he rules it's the place where the Antichrist or Antichrists are, and, and I'm not, don't go into a weird like Armageddon thought process. We're talking about individuals who are against God. They are from the world, verse 5 says, 
Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. And in contrast, we are from God, and so we listen to God. So the, the world is the place or the sphere or the, the existence. I'm, I'm struggling with terminology because it's not a specific, it's not sterling, right? It's, it's wherever these, these realities exist, where they're against God, they're against those who follow God, they lie about God and things, and the ultimate father of lies himself rules. That is the world. So, to put it in a sentence, the world is the, is the fallen way or system or sphere of living in rebellion and outside the authority and will of God. Okay? So it's not the physical world, but it is wherever, you can think of it as a realm or a kingdom, wherever the enemy rules and rebellion exists. If, if God is king, the world is wherever his kingship is not recognized. And ultimately, it's the world that we're all born into. So, to go back to chapter 2, it says this, do not love this world. And we've all experienced it. We've all experienced what it looks like to live in this world. It's the world where cancer rules. It's the world where brokenness rules. It's the world where liars and cheaters and stealers get ahead, thieves. It's the world where, where hypocrisy is, is the way of life. This is the world. And he says, do not love this world. And, and again, when, when we talk about love, we're not just talking about, you're, you're called to love people in the world, people who exhibit these characteristics, antichrists, right? Individuals who say, I'm anti-God, I'm anti-Jesus, I'm anti-God, I'm anti-church, I'm anti-religion. God calls us to love those people. But, but there's there's. The fact, so, so, so we're supposed to express affection and care towards those people, and that's one way of describing love. But what we're not supposed to do is to devote our lives and our existence and, and commit ourselves to them. Does that make sense? So when he talks about love, this is why I called it uh, a right devotion. He's talking about to whom we're devoted. You know, if, if we had to express worship in terms of bowing down, to whom do we bow down? You may love people in the world, but you don't bow down to those people. Who do you bow down to? He says, do not love the world. When we, when we view it this way, we can see that we either devote ourselves to God or to the world. You know, to put it another way, we're always worshiping. The question is not whether or not you and I worship. The question is who or what do we worship? The Bible calls us to worship God alone, and our sinful inclination is to worship created things. At this point, I think everyone's on board. You know, I mean, yeah, I came to church. Of course, I, I, I want to be devoted to God. What's, what's the deal, John? Well, he begins to describe what it looks like to be devoted to the world, and I think that we're, we're all going to feel a little squeamish, I hope, because that's the work of the Spirit when we think about what it looks like for us to be devoted to the world. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Oh, he said the things of the world. Man, 
What do you mean? What do you mean the things of the world? He's going to go to talk about it in verse 16. For all that is in the world, all that I'm talking about, he says, right? He's not talking about everything in the world. He's not talking about plants, grasshoppers, frogs. He's not talking about the sky. He's not talking about magma. He's saying all of the things that I'm talking about, verses, verse 16, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possession that's his way of describing this world, this, this system in rebellion against God is not from the Father, but is from the world. We don't love the things of the world because they're not of the Father. In fact, in verse 15, it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John says, if you love the world, you can't have love for God. You can't have love for the Father because, because you can't juggle them. Right? You're going to drop one of these. It's either love for the world or love for God. And he says, you can't hold them both. You're not that strong. So what does it look like to love the world? He talks about the desires of the flesh. Some of your Bibles may say the lust of the flesh or, or uh, various other things. But it's basically this desire that rises up from our fallen, unredeemed nature. You know, if, if we are sinful by nature and by choice, then there are things inside our souls that are, are wrong desires. Or there are right desires directed at wrong things. You know, God created Adam and Eve, and Adam saw Eve and said, oh my goodness, and sang a song. And he thought she was very attractive. And they loved each other, they're married. And, and I'm, I'm serious, I mean, God kind of, pronounces them together in, in the, you know, bringing them together. They're married and, and there's this marital relationship and this intimacy and this wonderful connection that they experience. And, and God created us as individuals to, to desire that kind of relationship. But the desire of the flesh would be to take that desire and seek to fulfill that desire outside of the means by which God has given us. Right? You want to you be a part of all the things that, that married people are a part of and do all the things that married people do? Get married. If you're doing and experiencing all the things that married people are doing, but you're not married, you are existing in the desires of the flesh. But it's not just that. It's this, it's this bent towards self. It's, it's this, you know, rather than, than being able to, like, look up at God, it's like our necks have been bent and all we see is our navel. And we're constantly thinking about ourselves, and we're navel gazing all day long. We're thinking, how does this do? What does this do for me? It's it's self focus, self preservation, self autonomy, which is redundant. Autonomy, autonomy. It's a bent towards self. It's taking, as I said, God ordained desires and seeking their fulfillment outside God's will. You know, maybe maybe the marriage metaphor doesn't doesn't touch you. Maybe it's wanting the provision of God, the resources, the money that God offers to those who seek his kingdom, but he, wanting it apart from the demand to seek his kingdom and apart from the demand to use those resources in ways that God commands. God, I want you to bless me, but I don't want to use this money in a way that you tell me, this going to be my money, okay? I want you to be giving me money, and then I want to be doing what I want with that money. And, and this is America, this is my private property. No one can tell me what to do with this private property. 
even though I have an HOA. Some of you don't, and you know what I'm talking about. But, but God says, you know what? To extend this analogy to ridiculous levels, there is a heavenly HOA. And God demands that you abide by certain commands. Desires of the flesh are, are self-focused. And you can, you can begin to see, okay, are my desires, is this a kind of a, a desires of the flesh type situation by saying, when, I, when that desire has been met, is my response gratitude and worship toward God or is it a desire for more? And that's that self-focus that I'm talking about. You know, a, a healthy appetite Many of you are going to go to lunch. I would encourage you to go to Los Totecos, Sweetwater, two of my favorites. And I will order, probably, if we, if we get Mexican, I will order the Chiles Poblanos. This is not a plug. We're not sponsored by them. I just like the food. What can I say? Um, and, and, it's, and it's good. And afterwards, I will eat it. And if, if I'm abiding by this command, I will eat until I'm full, and I won't eat further and make myself sick. And that's a physical analogy, but, but there are things that we pursue and we think that once I have this much, it's going to be enough. But the reality is the desire is, it's, it's a desire that rises out of the flesh and I'm never going to have enough. Once I get to this level of money, once I have this much in savings, once I'm making, making this much annually, I'm going to be satisfied. Then you get to that place and you say, well, just a little bit more. That's a desire of the flesh. That's living in the world. That's, that's absorbing, uh, receiving, devoting yourself to the world. The alternative is, is seeking the things that you need, but then being grateful and thankful, and then looking to God to meet those needs as well. He talks about the desires of the flesh. He goes on to talk about the desires of the eyes, and these are just desires that are sparked by seeing, or sparked by perceiving. In in. The Old Testament, in Exodus chapter uh, 20, we get the Ten Commandments, and, and God goes so far as to, he, he spells it out. And, and you got to think that he's talking to adults. And I want you to realize this when he, when, he, when he says this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. This is, this is the list of the Ten Commandments. And he, he says this, you shall not covet, or otherwise you should not be um, envious or jealous in the sense that you want something that's not yours. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your, neighbor, your neighbor's wife, well, that's awkward, um, his male servant or his female servant, their employees, his ox, his donkey, or anything that's your neighbor's. Stop looking over the fence. You know, maybe you don't struggle with, you know, desiring your, your, your neighbor's wife, but you, you really want his car. Like, that is a nice Tesla. I wonder how those guys drive. Right now, I wish I had a Tesla. You know? Desires of the eyes are desires that are sparked by what we see. And, they're, and oftentimes, we seek to fulfill them in ways that, that are not godly. And the fact is, when we, when we have these desires, oftentimes, they come from the, the soil. They grow out of the soil of ingratitude of a lack of contentment. And in most of us family, I would say in this, you know, in America, compared to the world, we're all fairly well off. Some would say rich. 
I will, be, I will be gentle and say, we're just probably well off. But when we look around, I mean, this is Loudoun County. You just go outside and you're like, I don't have that house. Don't have that pool. Don't have that business. Don't have that profession. Don't have his title or her title. Living and embracing the world is, is seeking after all these things that you see. This is a facet of the world. And then he goes on and he talks about the pride of life or the pride in possessions. <laughs> Again, if you were to read this in different versions, it, it, there, there is a vast array of, of ways of translating this because it, he speaks in such general terms that you kind of have to provide meaning. And, and if you look, I would encourage you to go and read the NIV, read the ESV, read the um, NASB. I, Take a bunch of different literal versions and look at it because they are all trying to get at it at different angles. But basically this idea of the, the, the love of life, this, this pride, or rather this pride or arrogance of life, it's not just like, I'm glad to be alive. It's, it's the pride in the things that make us alive. The things that, that provide life, my, my job, my money, my, my relationships, my car, my house, my apartment, my condo, whatever it is. It's those things that, that we could really trust in instead of the one who provides for those things. Having a pride in, in, in all of these things. And, and as we're here today on Sunday, we're, we're saying, oh God, I have you. I'm, I'm devoted to you, God. I'm holding, I'm holding you, God. But the danger is that really we've put him down and we're holding our, uh, my stuff my, my outfits, I feel comfortable because I have new shoes and, and a new shirt and, and, and clean clothes and I, and I look sharp. My, my, my status at work, you know, I am, I'm a senior VP and, and I, I'm, I'm considered successful. The amount of hours, I work 80 hours a week. I'm super busy, I'm super important. How much do you hear that? Oh, I'd love to come to your thing, but I'm just so busy. You know, I just got just so much more important than you. You know, I just got things to do. I don't even have time to sleep. In fact, I'm looking into this, this medicine that allows me not to sleep because that's how important my work is. I'm joking, but that's the world that we live in. And, and the thing about it is this pride, it says I am awesome instead of God is awesome. When the reality is, you can't even make yourself not sleep for very long. Like that's how little control you have over your body. Right, there are things that we have to go do in the bathroom that we can't not do. You have to do it. And at some point your body's like, whatever you wanna do, I'm making this happen. <laughs> and I don't mean to be crass, but I just want you to understand that, that John is getting at something about who we are. And the world, living in the world, is living in rebellion to the idea that there is someone else who's in charge. And we want to be like, I'm in charge. And I just want to tell you, God has wired us and created us in such a way that we can be daily reminded that we're not in charge. Hold your breath. Right? I think David Blaine was able to hold it for 17 minutes, and he had to, he had to do a ton of stuff to make that happen. For 17 minutes of not holding his breath. And God can... He can create things with words. I, I say things, I, I don't create things with, we are not God. And John is saying, don't devote yourself to this, 
this illusion that you're God. We shouldn't devote ourselves to this illusion that we're not God. And, and he goes on and he says, in fact, guys, the world is passing away along with its desires. You know, this train, it's headed for a cliff. You don't want to be on this train. You, you want to be the most powerful executive at Verizon for 30 years, then you get laid off or you retire, and then what happens? You, you live off your 401k and your Roth IRA, and then what? You die. That's, that's your life. That's the best case scenario. We, we, we live a particular amount of time. We're successful in our career. We, we provide for our family, and we still die. You can't even stop that. He says this world is passing away. When you die, you're going to be faced with a very stark reality of either having trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and being able to participate in his glory in heaven or not and being judged and contemned for the sins that you committed on earth. All of us, myself included, we will have to face that judgment. It's all passing away, family. And, and let me tell you, your neighbor... They may be impressed this week with whatever it is. Next week, they do not care. Probably two minutes after you're done talking about whatever it is you're proud of, they do not care. Those desires that you want to fulfill, those desires that you want to, uh, those need, needs, quote unquote, that you want to meet in ways that God has not ordained for you to meet, you know what's going to happen? You're going to, quote unquote, meet that need, and then five minutes later, you're going to be hungry. Five minutes later, because these things were never intended to be permanent solutions. They were intended to draw us up to the one who meets our needs. Family, your needs were not put there so that you could think that you were God. They were put there so that you could say, oh God, I need you. Again, we spend a third of our lives, if we do it well, unconscious. And I mean sleeping. I don't mean something else that happens at college for some people. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the unconscious sleep that happens to everyone for about a third of their life. Or maybe less for some people. We are dependent. You and I, we depend. Whether we want to or not, we depend on God. We're breathing right now. We're dependent on that. We, we don't want to devote ourselves to the world because the world is not really intended to be God to us. We want to devote ourselves to the only thing that is intended to be God to us. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, family, the reality is many of us probably struggle with these tensions. And so, okay, what does it look like, Pastor Eddie, for me to not love the world, right? It's really kind of hard to obey commands that are, that are like, don't do this. It's like, don't think of a pink uh, zebra. It's usually elephants, but today it's zebra. It's white, pink stripes. That's what I mean. Not, not black, pink stripes. White, pink stripes. Don't think about that. Now everyone's thinking about pink zebras, and some of you are thinking about elephants, and some of you are thinking about lunch because you're not paying attention. Um, and so what, how, how do we do this? The way that you don't love the world is that you put down the love of the world and you pick up a devotion for God. You don't just stand there. We're all jugglers, right? Your hands can't be empty. Come on, guys. 
This is what we do. This is what we're made to be. And I don't mean jugglers. We're all made to carry. So we're not, I'm actually saying don't juggle. But, but in, in the sense that we're made to carry something, pick up a devotion to God. Right? Go to lunch today. Eat something amazing on my behalf. And then afterwards, appreciate the fact that you have a tongue that can taste this stuff. You've got a mouth that can appreciate the, the textures. You've got a stomach that, that can feel satisfied. You've got friends and family to eat with. And then thank God and say, God, you are an amazing provider. You're an amazing creative creator. Now, we're not just all eating gruel, right? If, if, it were, if it were me, we'd be eating like squares. And it'd be really, you know, maybe we don't even eat, we just put it in our stomach. Just very, but God's creative. He likes beauty. He likes, you know, let's have shrimp and let's have cow. And, and these were never intended initially to be eaten, but they are now. So all of these things, we got the various kinds of fruits and vegetables. And, and he just, he's overflowing with creativity and he invites us to participate in it. And, and we can say, God, thank you. Go outside. Look at the sky. Thank God that it isn't winter. And in the winter, thank God that there's heat. All of these things, all of your needs, all your desires. Look at your spouse and thank God. Look at your children and thank God. Look at the fact that you're living in Northern Virginia and thank God. And I don't mean to, you know, put down other places, but I'm thankful to live here. I'm thankful for the freedoms that have been given to me. If you're a college kid living at home with your family, thank God. If you're a parent living with children, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> the way that we overcome a love for the world is not just to say, I don't want that. It's to say, okay, well, I, I do want this. It's to cultivate a love for God, a devotion to God, a right devotion. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you love us. Father, I thank you that you invite us to love you. And you're such a loving Father that you are willing to call us out when our, our, our desires become disordered. When, when, they, when they step out of bounds of the ways that you have called for them to be fulfilled. God, I pray that by your spirit that you'd bring conviction on us. That the places where we are trying to, to juggle, you would show us, Lord that you would show us that, that we need to give certain things up, turn away from certain things. And God, I pray that you would give us a fresh fulfillment in you. That like the psalmist, we could say, my flesh may fail me, but you are my portion. That you satisfy. God, I pray that like the psalmist says, that you would satisfy us in the morning with your word that we would see things in scripture that would bring satisfaction to our lives. And for those who are waiting for legitimate desires to be met, whether it's a desire to be married or a desire to have a job or it's the desire to, to be in, in relationship with other people, God, I pray that you would, you would meet them, that you would comfort them and that you would give them faith to embrace and devote themselves to you in the meantime. As we all wait and as we all live in this world that is broken and it's fallen and it's in rebellion against you, Lord, I pray that we would live in such a way that we would trust you and you alone. If you're in this room and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to do so today. 
If that's you, I'd love for you to raise your hand or if you're online, you can click the, the button that's in the chat. And, I, and I'd like to pray with you. There's nothing magical in the prayer, but it's just a way of responding to what God is doing in your heart. If that's you, you can just pray this. God, I turn away from, I turn away from my sin, my, my rebellion and disobedience, and I turn away from every effort on my part to live my life on my own. And I, I, wanna, I wanna submit my life to you. I wanna come under your authority and your lordship. And I wanna trust in Jesus, not myself. And I wanna trust Jesus, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. I wanna trust him for forgiveness. And I wanna trust him to make me new. God, would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. I love you, family.